Hello, everyone. Welcome to AMT's Tech Trends Podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news. Today's episode is sponsored by IMTS Plus. I am the Director of Technology, Benjamin Moses, and I'm here with... Technology Analyst, Stephen Lamarca. Steve, how are you doing today? What a dopey way to introduce <laughs> myself. <laughs> yeah. It's all right. I was like to think the worst in a while. I mean, I got my name and title right, right. But it's like, how full of myself right. did I sound right there? Fair point. We've been talking about uh, subscriptions recently. A lot of what subscriptions do? have been coming up. Yeah, so much so that there is a a subscri- subscription service for unsubscribing to subscription <laughs> services. Seriously. There's a lot of sibilance right there. The circular loop of subscriptions. <laughs> um, alliteration and sibilance is our problem of today's yeah. episode. But there's, there's been some weird ones, too. So I think you talked about BMW. Dude, BMW, like, oh man, this one. <laughs> so I was swiping through Instagram before bed last night. Right. And I see this video of uh, like this meme video of some dude with like, you know, a really jacked arm is holding the wheel to a BMW right. and then all of a sudden the vehicle stops like like <laughs> all the through the windshield all of like the scenery stops moving mm-hmm. and a little credit card swiper pops up and is like <laughs> uh, please pay to continue driving and swipes a card and it continues driving and it's like okay I don't get this at all right. like what's going on here and then I go to bed and then I wake up this morning to I think it was either the hustle or sure. somebody that says BMW is making you subscribe to use your seat warmers. <laughs> That's rough. And I mean, I, I could care less. Sure. Immediately. Okay. So I'll be honest. Immediately. I played devil's advocate right. because we're in the manufacturing industry. Sure. We know we have an idea of where this came from. You know, we've seen over time, like since like the four, since these, the, the assembly line, the Ford assembly line to where we are now, you no longer replace parts or when you're assembling a car, you're no longer putting individual parts in at a time. You're doing pre-manufactured assemblies right. that that are installed into the car. Right. And think about how much money like a car company could save if instead of having all of these different seats, you have one seat. Sure. And you know, all all seats have seat warmers now. Right. Companies like Kia and Hyundai love doing this with like their headlights and the radar systems. It's like even our base model Hyundai Sonata has the advanced tech package that you would find in a Mercedes Benz. Right. Like a loaded Mercedes Benz, like not a base model. Like you have to pay extra for this. Well, it's in a base Sonata. (laughs) That's fun. Because Hyundai's like, well, we want to be ahead of the tech. We want to keep up with technology, but it would cost us too much money to make like a base model because now we're having to make two models of this headlight when instead we could save money by making one that cost savings will trickle down to the consumer because they're a decent company (laughs) and, and and eventually it'll come around and like, you know, the auto critics will recognize this and they have, and we have, and we're in the industry and we realize, yeah, it saves you money if you just make one thing as opposed to many different things. BMW sees this finally. Sure. And they're like, okay, we'll stop making different tiers for different price point customers. But no, we still, we want to charge people differently. We want to separate the plebs and the riffraff from the premium consumers that we want. Yep. 
So now they're doing a subscription service. They haven't rolled it. This leaked in the U.S. Right. Right. Um, They've rolled it out in like some country that's not necessarily a third world country, but like I forget what country it is. Sure. And they're starting to introduce it into the UK, sure. which I'm like, what, what is wrong with them? <laughs> How did they wave the white flag they so quickly up. to the, the Germans? <laughs> and that's not going to stand in the US. And they're no. all, it was just a leak. Right. It wasn't even an official rollout yet. And the US is already not having it. And I couldn't be more proud. Good. Yeah, it is interesting. I, the big concern I have is I, I've been buying a lot of used cars for the past bunch of years. And I would hate, and to be honest, my last couple of purchases have been like minimal research. I know roughly right. the car, the horsepower, you know, some reviews about suspension, things like that. So the critical parts that I'm interested in. But now I've got a research of, is this feature a paid subscription service that I have to not right. only buy, but subscribe to afterwards? That's, that's like a lot, some of the cards I've you know wondered, you know, what type of collision detection system they have. I have to do a little more research mm-hmm. to understand, does it yeah. auto stop? Because we're in that weird transition where not everyone's the same. But now if I buy a used card in like a couple of years from now, now we're going to have to research, are there any subscription services I have to worry about? And are they still maintained? Yeah. That's terrible. Like Sirius That's XM, not- everybody knows how awful <laughs> that is. Yeah. Like, like just get Spotify or Pandora. What are you doing with this stuff? And that's expensive. Yeah, it's not cheap. I have that for my uh, wife's truck. Bless you. Man, <laughs> man, no need. You didn't need to flex on everybody today. Jeez. <laughs> One thing that I've been doing a lot is I, I've got a ton of subscription services, which, you know, my purchasing habits have shifted a lot. So when I was buying stuff, it was like a lifetime contract, basically, a, like a video game. If I bought a video game, I would technically have it forever. And I had a physical disc then. Mm-hmm. You know, over, I'd say the past 10 years, there's been a shift of all services being more of a subscription or pay to use. Uh, some video games are still purchased uh, for lifetime, but the digital platform that they're on is a little dicey. Um, but I have been doing a lot of say self-reflection on all the services that I have and how much I'm paying for those services. Cause yeah. it does add up at the end of the year very, oh, very yeah. quickly. Yeah. At the end, at monthly you may pay like a hundred dollars for everything, but that's $1,200 that you may not need every year. So I've been one rotating all my uh, video services. So right. I had HBO max realized i'm not watching that anymore let me turn that off and then i signed up for apple tv which is not bad once i finish the those series i'm going to turn that off and then go back to hbo when uh was a game of thrones or um lord of the rings comes out i don't remember which platform they're on but whatever okay um i'm definitely been rotating my services as i use it uh, i haven't gotten into borrow borrowing uh logins yet but that may come up soon dude <laughs> Man, they're That's trying to get buddy. ahead of that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've been borrowing logins forever. Yeah. Especially yeah. in the college days. Like, yeah. you know, come on, man. It's a struggle. Right. Um, But the, the that now it's cool that there's the, well, I guess it's cool. There's unsubscription subscription services. Right. Yep. You can subscribe to a service that doesn't cost you any money. Right. Doesn't mean it doesn't cost you anything, but it doesn't cost you any money. And they will go through... Like, I guess your, your social security number and find out everything you're subscribed to right. and give you a report back. And and they're like, tell us what you want to unsubscribe from nice. and we're going to do it. That's good. You don't have the email to that account anymore. Right. No worries. We got you <laughs> because it's crazy. You know, if you want to unsubscribe to something, let's yep. say you did get HBO or right. whatever way back long ago and you used obviously a personal email account, but like a burner email account. <laughs> right. And you don't have access to that email account anymore. Yep. Um, how do you get rid of that service? Yep. Cause they won't let you in. Right. 
And it's like, yeah, but you have my account number and I have that account number. So because I have this, my, my like my credit card number, will you let me unsubscribe? And they're like, no, we have access to your bank account, but yep. you don't have access to your email. So we can't verify that it's you. Yep. So and and it's it's really sketchy like that. They they make it really sketch. So it's kind of like this is sort of needed. Right. Um, But it's not really. Uh, but anyway, these unsubscribe services don't charge you any money, but I'm sure they data mine. Yeah, they're the heck out getting of your info, um, which is of- fine. If you have nothing to hide, data mining is not a big deal. Let's not let's take our tinfoil hats off. <laughs> uh, but but even still, even still, you don't need the unsubscribe service. There's another option. My mom recently <laughs> had to go through all of this stuff. Yeah, because, you know, she's protecting her nest egg. She's retired. Right. She f- realizes she's got. She had, excuse me, a subscription to Angie's list. Wow. Yeah. Back when they paid. That's interesting. And because she's grandfathered into it, they're still, they were still charging her. Of course. Even though now it's free because right. they're data mining. Yep. Um, another one, Rosetta Stone. Sure. Like her and my dad, uh, before he passed, went to, they did like their final big trip together. They went to the U- England mm-hmm. and France. And while there, you know, she wanted to make sure she brushed up for her friend on yeah. her French before going over there. She paid for Rosetta Stone. Sure. Doesn't have access to it anymore, <laughs> but they're still yeah, charging yeah. her. And Rosetta Stone is not cheap. That's expensive. They would not let her unsubscribe because she doesn't know what email she used sure. and and uh uh, what burner account she used. <laughs> and my mom always had like this bad habit of creating an email account with the different ISPs oh, that she would sure. like, like sure. That, that, you know, we would use right. growing up. So, which is really then. weird. That was like a thing <laughs> yeah. like, Oh, we, we don't expect you to have an email. So we're going to create an email yeah. for you. And by the way, when we go out of business, all of the <laughs> subscriptions are still going to keep going and charge to your credit cards. Yep. Um, so that's essentially what happened. And my mom has, uh, had a few meetings with like, you know, over the years with like her, uh, her wealth management team and, and like CPAs and stuff like that. And they're all like, yeah, just if that ever happens, if you ever find another one, use the nuclear option. What is that? Nuclear option. Yeah. You call your credit card company. Find yeah. out which credit. It's easy to find out which credit card is being charged because sure. you just look at the statement. Right. But you call that credit card company. Be like, my credit card was stolen. Oh. Not lost. Not yep. misplaced. Not expired. Um, Stolen. Yep. Because if it expires or if you lost it, they keep all of the numbers the same because, oh, they don't want to they don't want any inconvenience. They don't want to inconvenience you right. with having to resubscribe to anything. So they keep the numbers the same, but change the security code. Sure. And it's like they don't want it. It's not that they don't want to inconvenience you. They want to keep you. They want to keep you hemorrhaging money. <laughs> so. To stop that, you have to claim my credit card was stolen and then they change all of the numbers. You don't want to cancel your credit card account either because it's bad for your credit. Right. Um, But you report it as stolen. They send you a new card. They give you new numbers. And almost immediately, she was notified by all of these (laughs) subscription services that we're having difficulties getting your payment. Uh, You know, you need to fix this. And it's like, no, I don't. (laughs) I'm fix it by leave it alone. (laughs) I just fixed. I did fix it. That's an interesting option. Yeah, I didn't think about that. And to be honest, uh, it is a matter of time before the credit card companies change that one, though. Yeah, we'll see. That's terrifying. Yeah. I hope they don't. Maybe I'm just being 
maybe I have my tinfoil hat on right now. <laughs> but right, that's the nuclear option. That's a nuclear and option. Don't be afraid to use it. <laughs> it was getting out of control. Push that button, dude. Hit the button. Get the football out. <laughs> Steve, can you tell us about our sponsor for today? IMTS Plus, the people behind technology, the stories driving the future of manufacturing, the thought leaders and people like us creating the products, the opportunities, and solving the challenges of our industry. Explore a new digital destination designed for the manufacturing technology community where you can watch, read, learn, join, and connect. Nice. Go to IMTS.com. Thanks, Steve. I got a bunch of articles today on a variety of topics. The first one is from NIST. Awards nearly $4 million to support metal-based additive manufacturing. I like this on a couple of layers. NIST one, awards? Or they were awarded? They're awarding. So okay. uh, they have uh, a couple of research grants that they've awarded, but also their own internal stuff. $4 million, dude. So they've got, they list, the article lists four different um, uh, awards. Actually, this totals about four million. So this is how much money they're That's giving. That's eight out. titanium blisks, blisks for the <laughs> F thirty five. Good callback. <laughs> so of course, uh, and this is managed through the Department of Commerce, um, and <clears throat> what they're looking to help address is the current and future barriers to uh, the widespread adoption of metal based additive through measurement science research. And I think that's a subtlety that uh, I've, I've seen a a lot of barriers for additive, and they're looking at uh, you know the measurement side of it. Uh, so through their own research and with these grants, uh, and this is uh, addressing barriers of adoption of uh, additive manufacturing, including measurement science to support equivalence-based qualification and model-based qualification, characterization of AM materials, and standards to support consistent data exchange characterizing uh, new advances in AM production. So they actually hit on some very key elements that we've talked about before. Uh, characterization of AM materials. So, mm. you know, we talked about standards for AM materials, but sure. uh, obviously the value of AM is being able to pivot from material to material and yes. develop some new materials. So the characteriz characterization is very important. Um, you know, equivalence-based qualification and model-based qualification. So, you know, uh, in, aer in aerospace, we do that a lot where I have a previous design, I do a modern modification. I say this new part is equivalent to the old part. Therefore, it's qualified by similarity. Mm. Um, and I think that's a, it's a very good approach. And uh, consistent data. Um, and then obviously we're talking about, you know, I have a machine, I'm uh, printing parts. How do I get data off that machine? So I think um, this is a very uh, holistic approach of, you know, the need for additive to be more um, uh, production ready, mm -hmm. right? Uh, obviously, it's still supporting uh, low volumes and um, tooling. But when we look at out of uh, metal based, um, obviously, we're still stepping into production environments. And I think these are uh, foundational steps that uh, NIST is looking at. Uh, a quick highlight on some of the research. Um, the Research Foundation for the State of Univers State University of New York, they're getting $900,000 on wow. enhanced non-destructive testing techniques. Uh, Colorado School of Mines, my favorite school of mines. <laughs> A uh, project to examine new optical metrologies to enable real-time process feedback and control. Uh, they're getting also about 900K. Auburn University uh, established data-driven framework with computer vision and machine learning for non-destructive qualification of AI materials. And GE Research out of New York um, teamed up with uh, University of El Paso, established intelligent, intelligent stitch integration for testing and evaluation. So pretty broad spectrum of projects that... You know, the, the um, 
the investment is serious. So yeah. I do like the potential for a lot of these turning into standards, which obviously NIST is going right. to crank out from this research to further adopt, uh, further push the adoption of AM. Right. Because, you know, I have a question for you. Yep. We love standards yep. and I, I love that the need for the standardizations in materials is not only there, um, but it's gaining traction and it's moving forward. But my my problem is that's kind of confusing to me and it may be confusing to others is standardizing a material mm-hmm. isn't really beneficial to additive um, because one of the beauties of additive is not only being able to use multiple or any material, but being able to use a the, the exact and perfect material for whatever part you're trying to make. Right. And I don't think a standard would necessarily benefit benefit a a class of material. But is the standard for materials a standard in the the quality of mm-hmm. the material, like the powder, like the grain size, stuff like that? So I think what they're looking to is understand the characterization and understand what are the key elements that they need to make sure that they're quantifying through standards. So they, you know, they talk about splatter, particles, grain size. Uh, potential defect detection, um, you know, oxide thicknesses. Mm. So they want to understand what are the key elements and then san- probably develop standards on those key elements that roll up into different materials. Right. So I agree with you. It's not, uh, well, it's two sides, right? If you're looking at um, standardizing the material itself, so, you know, what does a stainless steel 321 in powder <laughs> form look like? You know, that's a standard versus gotcha. the components of uh, that material could be uh, different constituents, but how you characterize each of those constituents could be standardized. Right. How close are we to AM machines or 3D printers? Instead of having like, you know, a powder vat or powder hopper Mm -hmm. for Inconel, having multiple powder hoppers of just raw, (laughs) perfectly like grain sized, just elements in the machine just blends the material for you in the machine. For aim for um, are we a hundred years out on that? For metals, you're a ways out. For power for um, um, plastics, I think that's achievable pretty soon. Because you wow, could do, really? Because you could do by the pellets. I think okay. Um, with metals, it's a little because you have your elements right. So yeah. you're mixing smaller size It'd than be your, dangerous if you had a hopper of uh, potassium. <laughs> you better be keep dicey. moisture out of there. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I agree. That's that an interesting point though. You know, when can we, um, you know, mix on the fly? Because I'm sure there's some, some, some big brains thinking about that. It's like, let's just break it down to like the elemental. So, I mean, there's, I mean, you could do multi layers right now. Yeah. So you could shift from, I'm doing Inconel 625 and then shift to something lighter, like a 300 series, a couple of layers later mm-hmm. and shift, shift back and forth. That exists now. Wow. Um, but to have, um, you know, one part, one material from, you know, five different vats and then shift that uh, different print and then just basically, um, you know, make your materials of the fly. I don't know, man. Seems a ways. Well, that's like Star Trek type thing. Yeah. You've got an article on machine learning. Oh, I do. Let me, uh, let me cue it up. Is that one? That was a good article, Ben. Good. I, uh, that I like, one. I like what this is doing. We need to visit them more often. They're right down the street. Yeah. I, I, I was telling people over the weekend that like NIST, uh, has multiple clones of uh, 
uh, Newton's apple tree. <laughs> they legit yeah. have their the, the Newton's apple tree, a clone of it, right? Um, right. Which is just a, that's fun, a graft. Sure, but, sure. But you know, because it's fun, you just say clone. Right. It's effectively the same thing. Yeah. But yeah, whenever somebody does something special or uh, somebody donates a lot of money to them, it's like here, have Newton's apple tree. <laughs> it's like wait, what? <laughs> um, okay, so. Yeah, I have an article that touches on machine learning for automation via vision systems. Um, and the article is called uh, Robots Can Learn Household Chores by Watching You. Um, and I just thought it was really cool because, you know, it's it. we know that robot arms, like industrial robot arms, can be taught by, you know, clicking a button and guiding the arm, physically guiding the arm right. to do a task. Or, or setting checkpoints as it does a certain motion to avoid collisions and do this, uh, do it. You can, you can teach a robot arm, but it's cool that this article talks about, you just need a robot with a vision system mm -hmm. and it needs to watch you. That's cool. And they're talking about for household stuff, right. but let's, let's take this to an industrial level and, um, yeah, watching, it, watching them do an assembly, you right. know, pick in place and screw things together. That's. That's an interesting technique. It's kind of creepy at the same time, but it's fairly interesting. It is, it is a little creepy. Don't get me wrong. That definitely crossed my mind. Like, oh my God. Yeah. Um, but but I, I think it's cool. And it also, the article also goes on to say that the robot can also learn by trial and error. Yeah, definitely. So I've definitely seen that technique a lot. A lot of uh, pick and place from like a, a random bin of parts. Um it learns by, you know, taking picture. Um, and actually, there's a couple of techniques a bunch of years ago where they had it kind of train itself. Mm -hmm. And they're determining how long or how many pieces it needed to train before it got to, you know, 90% capable. Right. Um, and then I, I feel like that the training sets now are much smaller and they're much more efficient to uh, get to that. Um, but that is an interesting new technique for um, teaching automation is, you know, one, you could just do back-end programming. That always exists, which is great. I like right. that. Um, you could teach on the fly by moving the pendant around. But now, you know, teaching by watching, basically, right? Learn yeah. as you go. And I think that's that's another way to increase your speed of automation when you look at um, low volume, high mix scenarios. You know, if you're changing different assemblies uh, a lot, you know, if you do, you know, like a different part number every couple of shifts or every shift, um, but you, you know, can teach the robot for one part or a couple of parts and then have it complete the shift the rest of the uh, time. I think that's a fantastic, uh, fantastic way to implement some automation. Thank you. Yeah. I've got one on a little old school. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought of something, but I didn't want to interrupt you. Yeah. I thought one of the coolest demonstrations of um, machine learning, maybe not machine learning. Maybe that had nothing to do with it, but uh, automation and vision systems, yep. uh, being able to detect defects sure. um, was back at an uh, MT Connect uh, technical advisory group uh, tag meeting. Mm -hmm. um, before it was the standards before it turned into the standards committee and we got a ANSI certified. Um, I think it was at Notre Dame mm -hmm. where we saw this. You were there. Yep. Um, there was a vision system that showed a picture of two parts, mm -hmm. like a 2d picture of parts in the part looked the top of the part looked almost exactly the same as the bottom of the part. If right. the part got flipped over um, and looking at the pictures as a human, you couldn't tell the difference. Mm -hmm. But they went into the process of programming the robot's vision system to be able to tell. 
And it was it was fascinating for me because I was looking at that and it's like this robot's eyes, like not even talking about like thermal vision sure. or anything fancy like that. This robot's eyes are legit better than a human's. <laughs> That's fair. And yeah. that, that was years ago, man. Yeah. I've seen a couple of use cases on one um, optical measurement. So that exists. We've seen a lot of use cases where, you know, they're actually able to measure parts, see if it's in spec and out of spec. Um, we're also seeing a lot of cases where um, you can teach. Uh, so t- checking assemblies or mm-hmm. teaching pass fail criteria on the fly. Uh, back to your uh, point on uh, kind of observe, learn by observing for machines. Uh, there's a couple of companies that offer um, basically uh, in situ um, training sets. So as the parts being inspected, the operator is saying pass fail and the machine vision is taking a picture and recording the pass fail criteria. And I think it needs like, you know, a small data set com- considering all things that maybe it's like 20 or 30 data points. Mm-hmm. And then it starts uh, applying that data set for new parts. So it, it's able to um, basically you're able to teach the machine for that set. Um, so, you know, back to your point earlier about uh, implementing automation on the fly or when you talk about um, automating inspection, right? That's that's a very interesting and real time use case where you could, uh, you know, check 30 parts and have um, the machine vision check the rest of the sh- uh, the lot for the rest of the shift. So I thought it was fascinating. Thanks, Steve. Good article. Thank you. I've got one on retrofitting breathes new life into old machines. Oh, I like a good retrofit, dude. Heck yeah. <laughs> I, I, I keep I know I keep talking about this, but the first time that I went to and the only time uh, and I plan on going back the first time I went to the American Precision Museum in Vermont. Yep, I loved that. They showed me serial number one, the Bridgeport and email. <laughs> That's fine. The, the very first Bridgeport and email. Yep. And then just behind it. Like when you're looking at the first Bridgeport and email at the exhibit, at least that's the way they've probably changed it now. If you turn around right behind you is a functioning like being operated Bridgeport and email Uh that has been not only running MT Connect, but and not only outfitted with a digital readout, but automated axes. That's cool. Like they put stepper motors on the axes. So it's fully CNC. You don't even have to operate it. You can do it yourself. It's a manual machine. Yep. And they've retrofitted it to CNC. So I love a good retrofit, too. Let's <laughs> so, hear it. So this article from IMTS talks about a uh, manufacturer over in Ohio. Uh, they process, they make uh, process equipment um, for physical separation steps in the corn wet mill process. Um, and they patented a bunch of things for corn to ethanol uh, dry grinding process. Uh, what they're making is very large bowls, basically, machine bowls, uh, to the scale of their they have three boring mills. Uh, with more than 10 feet of travel. If you talk about travel in this, the feet range, that's a lot. That's big. Uh, 90 inches of vertical travel and uh, five right. very large like a, vertical lathes. Is this like a gantry machine? No, it's a lathe. I oh, know. So they, so they have some boring mills. Okay. So yeah, it's, and you know, when they talk about stuff that scale, it's very, very expensive. Yeah. So their plan is actually to purchase a lot of used equipment. So they're able to buy a, the t- one of the 10 foot boring bars for $35,000, you know, <laughs> <laughs> a little bit less than my used car. So it's that's a lot impressive. of money for a boring bar. And well, brand new 1.3 million. So when you're talking about, wow, the cost of the machine, dude, that's a huge savings, right? But that also includes a dated machine, right? So that's the, I think the big driver for the article is that, you know, they're able to get the, the good quality metal, good quality ways, all the physical assets that are uh, physical character, 
characters of a good machine mm-hmm. and retrofit a new controller or retrofit other gotcha. modern equipment on it. <clears throat> so that's their business strategy. And I thought that was a very uh, uh, intelligent way to approach maintain the revenue. Because I'm assuming, you know, producing process equipment, that's that's not super high margin stuff, right? right. So all your components and costs to um, keep your equipment down uh, cost low makes a lot of sense. And you're able to buy a big machine for 35000 and then you'd spend, you could spend another hundred k on retrofitting it. And it's still significantly cheaper than yeah. a brand new machine. Not that I'm saying you shouldn't buy new machines. Right, right, but right. if you have the capability to retrofit something. $35,000 is a fraction of one and a half million. So I thought this was a great article about, you know, being able to, if you got old piece of equipment, is revitalizing that uh, equipment to make it, one, more usable. Wow. But also, you know, be able to standardize all your controllers, being able to get data off your machines. Um, so that, that's a very good look at, you know, there's a lot of manufacturers that have, you know, equipment that's been running since like World War II that run great. You know, it produces a very, very good part, very consistent part. And we'll talk about some quality stuff at the end of the episode, too. You know, they're able to maintain the uh, level of quality and process control that they want. But, you know, it's mainly maybe manual operated or uh, maybe it's old, very, very old controller. So being able to retrofit the equipment to modern standards, man, that's fantastic. Wow. You got one on a seven-year-old that doesn't get lucky with a robot. Yes. Um so it it actually this actually came across my social media just like the BMW thing did. Right. Uh last night or maybe in Monday. Um anyway, I saw uh something shot across my bow on uh overseas. There was some like chess not chess tournament but like a chess demonstration. Sure. And some university, I think, was demonstrating their robot that can play chess. Yep. And the seven-year-old boy um, goes up to, you know, make his move on the chessboard. And then his hand gets pinned down right. by the robot. Um, and and the, they, they said that the video was graphic. And it really wasn't that bad, <laughs> sure. but I think it's, I think they have to say that when it happens to somebody that's a minor. Sure. Um, and anyway, yeah, the kid gets a broken finger right. from it. And when you see what happened, the, uh, the little boy makes his move on the chessboard mm-hmm. and then does something that's technically illegal in like, like, like professional chess, uh, then decides to like, not make that move and like move it back. Yeah. And at this, this point, the robot had already started moving and decided to take the spot where, um, the, the, the boy decided not to move. Right. Um, and ends up, they, 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 the the boy's arm and the robot arm collide. Sure. This robot ends up breaking his finger. Right. So immediately looking at this video, actually not even the video looking at the still shot, I see that's not a collaborative robot. <laughs> that that robot doesn't have collision detection. Right. That's a full on industrial robot. Right. This is that's mistake number one. That's red yeah. flag number There's one. There's a lot of mistakes in the scenario. I'm not gonna give the little boy crap. Sure. Because he's seven years old. There's parents that should be involved in this. There, situation. Yes, that's yeah. <laughs> mistake number two. Mistake number two. Good job. <laughs> see, parents know this stuff. I don't. Um mistake number two. I am not gonna fault 
like the boy's illegal move. <laughs> sure. Um, because the illegal move was the parents <laughs> letting the boy. And then the, then I see another picture of like the same. It's the same picture, but it's zoomed out. Right. Not only is it not a collaborative robot because an industrial robot does not have collision detection. So if it was a co- cobot, if it was a cobot. It would have felt that mm, this doesn't feel like chessboard. This feels like a human, small human bones. Right. Um, let's back up. Let's right. let's throw a flag and let the operator come over and reset everything. You know, that didn't happen because it's an industrial robot that yep. is assuming that it's in a perfect world with no soft targets around it. Right. Anyway, look at this. I see the zoomed out picture. There's a safety enclosure around <laughs> around the chessboards wow. and the ro- so not only is it not a collaborative robot with a void of any collision detection, yep. but this little boy was given permission to go within safeguarding, yep. like safety fence fences. So he broke all the rules. Yeah. On the chessboard and the safety rules. I mean, that's like sending, like, would you send a seven-year-old kid to go inside a CNC machine? No, come on. Like, inside the safety enclosure? Exactly. exactly. That's unfortunate. There's so a lot of things It's unfortunate, yeah. and it's terrible. I feel bad for the little boy. Shame on the parents, but I feel bad for the parents, too. <laughs> um, that kid's not going to want to play chess again. Yeah, Some no. kids grow up, like, and, and as adults are terrified of dogs. He's afraid this of kid's going to be afraid of chess, <laughs> going to be afraid of robots. That's unfortunate. Probably going to be a polit- uh, politician that is anti-manufacturing. <laughs> That's a good investigation, Steve. I appreciate the uh, you know, thoughtfulness of getting past the headline of robots breaks uh, seven-year-old boy's arm. Right. We and saw the problems. Yeah. So the last article I have, Steve, is Rockwell Automation Partners with Industrial Cybersecurity Expert Dragos. And the big takeaway, it's from uh, manufacturing.net. The big takeaway here is we've... We're starting to see a, a progressive trend of automation companies or companies uh, dealing with you know physical and software automation partnering with uh, security experts. Um, you know, episode episode or two ago, we talked about some other uh, partnerships um, related to that and uh, how important it is when they're transferring data, uh, being able to make sure it's secure. Now these guys are um, looking to. Um, you know, partnered for the couple levels. One, they have integrated control systems and incident report, uh, incident responders from Diagos, um, field service engineers, and a global network uh, from Rockwell, and to coordinate uh, from Rockwell uh, project management um, for any issues. So it's it's a growing trend where you know I think uh, in our sector we're slowly talking more and more about security. Um, since the tail end of it is, you know, all the digital information that we've been collecting. Now we're seeing a lot more uh, remote connectivity with uh, our manufacturing equipment. So it's a short article, but I see a a growing trend in uh, automation companies um, doing a lot more uh, collaboration with security companies and vice versa. And I think we'll see a lot more of that in the future, you know, as NIST pushes their uh, cybersecurity framework um, and the Department of Defense pushes their CMMC uh, there's a strong need for um, security in manufacturing. Uh, you know, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about um, uh, the military printing on ship, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Marines, uh, Navy printing uh, replacement components for drones. And I think that's a fantastic use case. Um, you know, it's drones. So, you know, some of it's flight critical, but it's for drones. Right. Being able to, you know, print stuff. But then also the uh, metrology side of it is kind of uh, still questionable, but being able to test that. But, you know, the whole data, 
uh, stream to get to the ship? And then how do you control all the data on the ship? So it's very interesting look of uh, where security plays in the future of manufacturing. And uh, there's a lot more uh, discussions and collaborations to occur. Right. So it's a good one. Uh, so to touch base on quality, Steve, yes. you got something that I'm a little nervous to talk about because it's a little outside of my strength. Well, but... it's confusing. <laughs> it's it's okay to admit That's that fair. it's confusing. I'll admit that I've, I, I'm going on eight years in this industry yep. and I still, at least until this day. Today. Maybe. <laughs> have felt uncomfortable explaining to somebody when they ask what Six Sigma is. Okay. Like the first time somebody explained and at least attempted to explain to me what right. Six Sigma is in layman's, they were like, oh, it's using like data monitoring. It's like monitoring data to ensure quality on either a manufactured good or even a customer service. And I'm like, Meh. OK, that sounds like like what everybody does. <laughs> everybody looks at data yeah, to ensure yeah. Well, at least attempt to ensure quality control. Right now, as I learned, uh, as I w learned more, it's like, oh, if you achieve a certain high degree of quality, right now you're starting to meet Six Sigma. But anyway, I'm at my desk late last night working on the tech report. Yep, and there's like three people left here in the office. It's Nina. She's about to leave. Um, actually, no, Nina had just left. It's just me and Jesse Tran, the FNG, the new guy. <laughs> and Jesse is like hanging out with he's he's about to leave. Right. Um, he got all his stuff together. He's got a little lunch pail. Um, he's about to leave. And he's hanging out with me in the tech pod while I'm finishing up the tech report. And he sees a book on, I think, in between, you know, two desks, unoccupied desks, RIP. Um that says something about Six Sigma. It's right. a Six Sigma book. Yep. And he's like, Stephen, what is Six Sigma? And I'm like, can you can you look at another book and ask me? Like, <laughs> of all the books to look at, there's a bunch of books on on our area, and that's the hardest it, one to ask. <laughs> at this moment, I had just finished the tech report. Yep. And I'm like, you know what? Let's learn this together. Okay. We're, I'm gonna I'm gonna put an end to this to this confusion. <laughs> yeah. And. Um, use Google. Yep. And I use an AI tool to we'll, summarize long-winded articles. We'll get into that after your article. That's we really can cool. talk about that later. Okay. It's experimental. We're just fiddling with it. But I'm like, what better time yep. than some, you know, academic essay of an art? Multiple. I looked at three articles trying to explain Six Sigma. And they were all like you had to scroll, scroll, scroll just to get to the bottom of them. Yep. And you're like, I can't read this in five minutes. Can I point something out real quick? What up? I'm glad that you took the time because I would have told Jesse to go read the book. <laughs> <laughs> so out of this, out of this research that I did with Jesse's inspiration, sure. I wrote a small two paragraph article, article, mm -hmm. like summary of explaining WTF is Six Sigma. Sure. And all right, I'm going to read it out loud. Go ahead. First paragraph. The Six Sigma quality improvement approach was developed in 1986 by Motorola. 
The main goal of Six Sigma is to reduce def- reduce defects in manufacturing and service processes by using da- a data-driven approach. The Six Sigma methodology includes a number of quality tools and techniques that can be used to improve process quality. Nice. That's okay. a, good over- a good overview. That's the intro. Yep. Now let's do the outro because the <laughs> intro left still leaves me with some questions. Yeah. You know, yeah. and the main question is why six Sigma? Right. What is Sigma? Right. Why are there six of them? <laughs> and like it, 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 we mentioned tools. We just mentioned uh, um, uh, quality tools. used. Right. Are there six tools? No, no. there are five. <laughs> so now it's just got more confusing. Sure. Trying to answer this. What should be a simple question? Nope. Paragraph two. Final paragraph. Don't worry. The term Six Sigma comes from statistics and refers to the fact that in a normal distribution, 99.99966% of data points will fall within six standard deviations of the mean. Six Sigma is a quality control program that seeks to reduce defects in manufactured products and services to a level of just 3.4 defects per million opportunities. Yep. That's solid. That's it, dude. You got to get the math in there to answer. Why has it taken me nearly (laughs) eight years to get to this? Like, and it's not my fault. Don't call me dumb. Like nobody, nobody has been able to distill six Sigma to this small and acute of a level in layman's terms. Yeah. To be fair, we don't talk about it that often. We don't, we don't, but we should still know about it. Yeah. Like the first person that I know who tried to tackle this, the explanation of Six Sigma Mm -hmm. was Jules. She tried her best. She did a great job. Okay. That was a while ago. It still made no sense. It was a while ago. (laughs) You know, that that is a a fair point because, you know, the term Six Sigma does get tossed out a lot and it's a more of a journey that people try and achieve. So there's the different sectors approach it differently, right? So if you're producing like a million parts, Right. If you're in like Semicon and you're producing a huge volume parts or automotive, you know, making sure you have three defects per million makes a lot of sense because you're going to get to a million parts. When you scale that down to like low volume uh, production, then you get to more acceptable range of, you know, trying to achieve like three sigma. Right, right, right. You have a certain number of defects. And again, it's back to opportunities, right? Oh, yeah. I saw like Jesse and I were looking at my computer and I saw a chart Mm -hmm. of like the different levels of sigma. Mm -hmm. Also, I found out there's a seventh level too, <laughs> which is crazy, like like high quality. But sure. anyway, I'm looking at these levels and three sigma, like you just mentioned, right. perfectly fine. Right, exactly. Why do we need to go three more? <laughs> it's it's because Motorola is Japanese and they care about quality better than anybody else does. Yeah, and part of it is a journey to improvement. It's not necessarily always achieving that. It's identifying, hey, this thing we have more than what we want for waste let's try and solve it it's manufacturing is just a big journey man dude this is more than a journey <laughs> this is like some religious thing yeah that's true this is this is some sort of religion <laughs> six sigma what is this utopia these people are speaking of and but, yeah behind there's a lot of stats behind it and it's it is worth you know diving in the next layer uh within that to help understand you know the type of things that they're uh measuring uh understand the standard deviations and understanding the uh Low limit, high limit, uh, you know, and, and then they're talking about just normal distributions too, which covers a variety, a wide variety of uh, scenarios. Uh, but if it's not normal based, then you have to adjust for it. it. There's a, it's a big world, so I would definitely recommend talking to like a quality manager about that, 
because uh, they can definitely spend hours on hours talking about that. So buy someone a beer, get ready to take a nap. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I did misspeak. Motorola, I thought was a Japanese company. It's not. No. Back then they were US based, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Here. <laughs> what happened to the in, in, in defunct as of uh, 2011? Oh. RIP Motorola. A lot of good it did. Best phones ever, though. They were pretty durable. Not Nokia, though. Mm, fair. They had some solid Japan, flips. I'm, I'm, I'm confident Japan has seven Sigma. <laughs> See, we cover a lot of different things. Thanks. We covered a lot. Where can they find more info about us? amtonline.org slash resources. See you there. Awesome. Bye, everyone. Bye.